Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father through the Lord Jesus. Amen. We are people of the Word, a people of God's abundant, life giving Word, a Word that we carry with us into our daily lives, even into hopeless and impossible situations. Because God promises, my word from my mouth will accomplish what I sent it out to do. Now, when we think of the phrase, word of God, or God's word, I imagine that we probably first think of the scriptures, right? What is the word of God? It's the Bible. It's the scriptures. We trust that they are faithful accounts of what God has done. It's his breathed out word. And we trust that's true and that's good. But we need to take a few steps back, I think, when we contemplate and meditate on what God's word is. First and foremost, the word of God is Jesus himself. The word that was in the beginning, that was with God, that is God, that took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. That is God's word. We see it in Jesus. Sometimes we call it technically the second person of the Trinity, right? Jesus, the Word of God made flesh. First and foremost, Word of God is Jesus himself. Secondly, Word of God is the actions, but also especially the proclamation of God in history. God showed up in specific moments, in specific places, and spoke into people's ears. He meets with Abraham. He meets with Moses at a bush that's on fire but isn't burning up. He meets with Israel at Mount Sinai. God speaks into specific moments of history. He intervenes and acts in his creation. And that is his word. It's God's word from his mouth being proclaimed in the world. Thirdly, the scriptures. God's faithful accounts of these events, of these speakings of God, of Jesus himself, faithful accounts of this God who interacts in the world. And so when we think about word of God, I really encourage you to think about a threefold understanding of that word. First and foremost, Jesus, the word made flesh. Secondly, the actions and words of God spoken in history. And third, the scriptures, the faithful accounts of tellings of these events. In Isaiah's writing, we hear today, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, my word, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent. God is speaking promises And the words of God's mouth, he says, are like the rain and snow from the sky in what they produce in the world. God's word is meant to bring life, right? That's what rain and snow bring about in the world. When it rains, the earth buds. It blossoms. Even in the desert, some of you may have seen pictures of this or experienced this, in the desert where it's a barren waste, if there is rain that falls, you get things called desert blooms, 
where it looks like there's no life at all, and suddenly it's full of wildflowers. Rain means seeds germinating in the soil. It means plants growing. It means bread and fruit and vegetables. Abundance. Rain means life. And God announces that the word that he speaks, it's like the rain. God's words, like the rain, will be effective. They will strike the empty and desolate ground, and life will come forth out of the soil by God's abundant word. And this is not a new quality of God's word. It's not as if God is saying, my words functioned a certain way, but now it's going to change, and now it's going to bring life. No, in the beginning, God speaks. And his word accomplishes what he sets it out to do. A beautiful, flourishing, abundant creation. He speaks and birds fill the sky. Words from his mouth and suddenly there's fish and sea creatures. He speaks and there are land animals and humans. Plants with all kinds of flowers and seeds and food. God speaks and his word creates Eden blessing. God's word brings life because that's what he purposes it for. That's what he desires. I think when we consider the efficacy of God's words in this regard, we may misunderstand in one of two ways what God is saying here. First one is this. One side of it is hearing that these words from God are somehow an affirmation of fate, an affirmation of fate. If God speaks and sets out uh, to accomplish things, and, and only what he sets out to accomplish is accomplished, then everything that happens in the world must be his doing, right? Everything that happens must be because of God's word spoken. If there is peace or war, life or death, abundance or scarcity, It's all God's accomplishment because when he speaks, things take place. And if something has taken place, it must be from God's desires. But this isn't the case. This isn't the case. This prophetic word that we have today was given to people to carry with them into Babylonian exile. Babylon was an empire of violence and oppression An empire that saw what it wanted and took it, more or less, when it wanted to and how it wanted to. Its military machine pushed out over the land in conquest, killing and enslaving. Under Babylon, there was no shalom. There was no wholeness or peace for the people. It may have looked wealthy and abundant, but it was at the expense and on the backs of others. There was no shalom. Instead, it was idolatry and dehumanization. That's not from God. That's not what God desires. No, instead, what God speaks into the situation of exile, what he speaks to those living under the power and the demand of Babylon is that his word will bring life. His vision of hope for the future will bring life into the desolation and darkness that Babylon brings. And that Babylon's reign will come to an end. And they will finally return home. God will bring life and shalom where it seems utterly impossible. 
That's the first way I think we sometimes misunderstand this passage is that this is somehow about fate. It's not about fate. It's about God's determination to bring life even where it seems impossible. I think the other way we misunderstand what God is saying here is in that phrase, it will not return to me empty. I think we sometimes hear this contrast that Isaiah has. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. As if it's a, sure, it's not going to return to me empty, but it's certainly not going to accomplish everything that it's sent out to do. For instance, imagine I'm going to go out to pick strawberries, let's say. You set out with the intention, you're going to gather a basket full of strawberries, but when you come back because the crop wasn't so good, you've only got like an eighth to a quarter of a basket. It's not empty. Somebody might say, look, you returned. It didn't come back empty. I mean, it's not what you fully set out to do, but you accomplished the act of sending out to go and get some strawberries. I think we sometimes hear God's promise here in that way. Sure, it's not going to come back empty, but it's certainly not going to accomplish everything that he sent it out for. The text, however, is inviting us to imagine otherwise. To imagine that in the midst of imperial power and demand, even in Babylon, in the midst of a world still today where hatred and violence and death are the norm in a world where indifference and apathy and dehumanization are just commonplace, we are invited to imagine that God's word will accomplish what he desires. And not just some of it, but somehow against all hopelessness, against all empirical evidence to the contrary, God's word from his mouth will set out and accomplish what he sends it for. When God says, It will not return to me empty. That's a contrast to the absurd. How in the world can the God who spoke in the beginning and say, let there be light. Let there be an expanse above. Let there be plants and animals. How can a God who spoke and brought life possibly have his word return empty? No. It will accomplish what he sends it out for. It will accomplish life and abundance to the fullest. And God has made some, one could argue, absurd promises. Some things that seem just utterly impossible. The people of Yahweh in this story in Isaiah, he promises that they will leave their captivity in Babylon. They'll come out of exile. They will journey home. There is zero evidence at this time that that is going to take place. Nevertheless, God speaks that word of promise. Earlier on in Isaiah's account, Isaiah writes that the Torah, the teaching of God, the the words of God will go out from his mountain and all nations will stream up to him. And the nations of the world will join together in peace and they'll destroy all of their weapons of war. And they will turn them into farming implements so that they can work together to foster and cultivate life. In the passage alone that we have today, God promises that where there are these plants, the briars and the thorns, 
these signs of desolation and toil, these signs of the curse in Genesis 3, these signs of death, those things are going to be replaced by Eden blessing. Myrtle trees, juniper trees, the curse in Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. What once brought forth abundance with ease is now producing thorns and thistles, a life of toil unto death. But God declares the word from his mouth is going to reverse and undo that very curse. Eden blessing, as impossible as it seems in the world today, is going to be restored because God's word sets out and it accomplishes what he desires it to. How could his word possibly return empty? I mean, consider Jesus in his own ministry. One day, there's a crowd of, it says 5,000 men, which means over 10,000 people, probably, right? Because you've got men, women, and children as well. And there's five loaves of bread, which, I mean, I could probably hold in my arms. And what does Jesus do? He speaks a word. And he gives that bread out, and everybody eats a full, overflowing meal of bread and fish until they've all had their fill, and they end up with more food than they even started with. This is the power of God's Word. That on that last day, when this Word reaches its completion, the trees and the mountains, for crying out loud, will cry out loud, clap their hands, and sing for joy. Because God does the impossible, restores his people, and brings abundant life to its fruition. God speaks word into the impossible and brings hope. Because his word is something that meets the impossible and hopeless situations and brings life. This is the resurrection of Jesus, right? I mean, think about it. We're a group of people who trust a word of promise that God brought a man back to life, a dead man back to life. And he's now still alive and has been for like some 2,000 years. And not only that, but we claim that when Jesus returns, he's going to speak and raise all of the dead out of the ground against all, again, empirical evidence today against all of our life circumstances and situations in the world, all hatred, violence, disease, all that seems to point in the opposite direction, right? No hope, only anger and despair. But by the Spirit in us, gifted by God, we trust that Jesus is alive and that that life of Eden blessing will flow out into the world once again in all its fullness. We trust God's promise that all nations will someday stream to him, that war will cease, and that relationships between nations and peoples and individuals will somehow be healed, along with our bodies, and that the creation in some way or another is going to rejoice when it is released from its bondage. We're a people of the word God's word that speaks into the darkness and hopelessness of death and sin. God's word that takes on flesh and dwells amongst us and dwells in us. The crucified one who lives. We are people of the word who therefore dare to trust in the midst of what seems impossible. To trust God to hope against all hope. 
and therefore to engage the impossible because God raised Jesus from the dead. There are issues in our world and society today, and even maybe in our own families, that seem like impossible issues. Societal issues that sometimes we look at and say, there's no way that there's really ever a solution for whatever that may be. Sometimes people look at things like hunger and homelessness in this way. They're multifaceted issues, and each community is going to have its own challenge. But many look at situations like homelessness or hunger and think, well, it's never going to go away. We can't actually possibly solve it. What about matters of worker rights or immigration challenges in our country? It's not as simple as remove all barriers or put up all barriers. And sometimes matters of immigration seem impossible to solve. Sometimes there are relationships in our own families or amongst our own friends. And we may tell ourselves, well, I can't talk to so-and-so. I know they'll never change. I know it's not possible for them to really listen or to even possibly converse with them. Or maybe we did something harmful in a relationship. And when we look at what we've done, we think it's impossible to possibly heal what I have done. But the resurrection of Jesus is the power of God's word in the flesh and proclaimed into the world. Our faith is founded on the very impossible, being turned inside out. A dead man is alive, reigning over heaven and earth. And if we trust that that is true, that God raised a dead man back to life, then why do we have such a hard time with saying, well, this situation can't possibly be turned around? If the word of God is effective to bring life, if it will accomplish what he sends it out to do, to fulfill his desires, then we as people of the word have the challenge and the invitation before us of seeing situations filled with hatred, division, apathy, indifference, war, disease, sin, and death, you name it. And not to despair or turn in rage, but to bring life, to carry the word of God, Jesus himself, with us into those situations, trusting that he somehow can bring about abundance and Eden blessing. He has spoken his word, and it will not return empty, but full and overflowing, because God's purpose is life in his creation. This doesn't mean that if we trust enough and do the right things that everything's going to be fine. The world is broken. But the end game of God, the end goal is full, abundant, overflowing life. And we have the joy of carrying that with us even into our daily lives. We're a people of the word. A people who have a mission for the impossible and hopeless situations of the world. Because we have a God who speaks still today. A God whose word is enfleshed and living. A God whose accounts have been written down for us to shape and reshape our imaginations. That where we see, hear, and even feel the desolation and imperial tyranny of this distorted world and of distorted humanity... To trust against all odds and evidence that God's word is powerful, it's effective, 
It's bringing life in Jesus. It will in the future and can and will even still today. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds as we live in the word made flesh amongst us. Amen.